Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. Redfin and Compass both announced big layoffs last week, and other brokerages are taking a hard look at office leases, tech expenses, and more. Today on Housing Wire Daily, senior mortgage reporter Matt Blake joins me to talk about how brokerages are adapting to lower volume and whether CoStar has found Zillow's Achilles heel in New York City. Matt, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks a lot for having me. Oh, so happy to have you on here. We have lots of really interesting news. Uh, these articles you've been writing that I'd love to jump into. So the first one that I want to talk about is the fact that CoStar's CitySnap is taking on Zillow in New York City. So walk us through, you know, how New York City real estate is a little bit different than other places and what this uh, what this fight could mean. Sure. Let me take the first question first. How is New York City real estate different from other places? The main way New York City real estate is different from other places is that most other places have a multiple listing service and real estate agents get their listings from the multiple listing service. Zillow, Redfin, other consumer sites aggregate from that multiple listing service. New York City does have multiple listing services, but they're very fragmented. There's, for example, you know, multiple listing service that only like serves like one part of Long Island, for instance. And so what happens is, is that StreetEasy, a company that Zillow acquired in 2014, they basically control the listings in New York City. So instead of like elsewhere where Zillow is merely aggregating information multiple listing services have, Zillow kind of runs things in New York City through StreetEasy and they charge fees uh, for people listing their homes and they have their premier agent program through StreetEasy where if you're a buyer's agent, you can pay money, you can pay a monthly fee, your name pops up, says, hey, go to Map Lake Real Estate in Queens, I can help you with this home. And so what this has caused a lot of controversy, like why is this private company Zillow like sort of controlling the information flow in New York City? And so CoStar, which is this listings giant um, in commercial real estate, this is kind of their big entree point into residential real estate. And so what they have done, they bought this company called HomeSnap two years ago. And so they are using HomeSnap to partner with the Real Estate Board of New York, which is basically the New York City equivalent of the National Association of Realtors, this kind of powerful entity that kind of like dictates the rules and policies and good manners of real estate business. And so the Real Estate Board of New York and CoStar have created this rival app and website, consumer-facing and brokerage-facing, to take on StreetEasy. And the name of this is CitySnap. And so Andy Florence, he's the very brash, charismatic CEO of CoStar. He came out last year and said, we're doing this. We are not going to charge agents for listings. We're only going to charge agents if you want to like put your listings in like bigger font or more prominently on the website. And, you know, since Florence came out and said that, what has happened is that obviously the real estate market is in flux, rising mortgage interest rates, the stock market is going down. There's a lot of uncertainty right now, but CoStar says that it's moving ahead. 
And on January 30th, next Thursday, it is going to put out a consumer-facing website called CSNAP in conjunction with a Real Estate Board of New York that is going uh, to challenge Zillow. And so, I mean, it's going to be a really, I guess, interesting experiment because basically it's, you know, imagine a situation where like the only soft drink is Coke and then Pepsi is introduced and Pepsi has as much financial backing as Coke, that kind of thing. But like how long does it take for a consumer to like switch over to Pepsi and will a consumer even switch over to Pepsi? And that's kind of like the question facing City Snap. And if it fails, then maybe CoStar's plan to enter residential real estate fails. But if it succeeds, then, you know, maybe CoStar will be taking on Zillow um, nationwide. That's the most interesting part of this for me. We know that New York City real estate is its own beast and uh, really operates in a different way. But depending on what kind of momentum they do or do not get, depending on what we see there, will be really interesting as a test case for the nation. So one of the things that your article talks about is that, you know, so far there there's not a lot of talk about it yet, or maybe they haven't done a lot of marketing, or maybe it's just the people we talk to. But what is your sense for how they're, you know, is this going to be a big launch? Is it going to be something that everyone's going to know about? Yeah, I don't think it is going to be a big launch, which I think is notable because I think that there was a lot of, hype about this, about this, about like in the fall, like I went to the National Association of Realtors Convention in San Diego, CoStar and HomeSnap, like through the like main party there and like the gas lamp district in San Diego. And there are billboards in New York City saying you're listing your lead, which is like City Snap advertising. But like there has not been much of a ramp up since then. And I think that Whatever the case, the changing market, um, sort of the ramp up last fall kind of coincided with Zillow being vulnerable after it closed down iBuying. So maybe that was part of it. But it's been kind of a quiet ramp up. Folks, I I, I know I quote Fred Peters in the article. Um, He's a member of the Revenue Board. He was saying like, yeah, nobody's really talked about it. Other people... Uh, Brown Harris Stevens uh, agents told me, you know, nobody's really been talking about it. So the, it's kind of like a soft launch. And, and I think that their hope is, is that in a few months, in a year, that the people will start um, switching over. And, but, and by people, I mean both like uh, consumers using it, but then also agents being like, hey, I don't need to pay $2, $6, whatever the, the fee is a week to to list on um, Street Easy, I, I can list on uh, City Snap. Really, really great points there. Um, so so one thing I had a question about, you know, when we when we look at that, if we want to pull back and just look at the real estate landscape in general, right? The last couple of weeks have been pretty disruptive. We've had Redfin and Compass talk about layoffs um, and 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 proceed with layoffs pretty, pretty substantially, uh, a pretty substantial number. Can you, can you give us the, the bottom line on both of those companies? Right. Yeah. I think that's a really important context. I mean, in terms of the, the city sap stuff, I think one of the reasons that things are muted right now and that kind of thing is just an overall feeling of uncertainty in residential real estate. And that uncertainty is highlighted by, yeah, the co the, not the co-star, the compass, and Redfin layoffs. And so Compass laid off 
I think off the top of my head, 450 workers, about 10% of its workforce last week. Redfin laid off 470 workers. And why did these companies lay off workers? Well, you know, Redfin said that uh, Glenn Kalman wrote a fairly lengthy blog post saying we need to move to profitability and we need to reward people who have invested in this company with us becoming a profitable company. Redfin is a very interesting company. They have a very specific model, agents as employees. They've invested a lot into iBuying. They acquired RentPath. They acquired Bay Equities Home Loans. They have a lot of irons in the fire, but they have not been profitable, never been profitable as a publicly traded company. They lost $118 million last year at a time when most other companies made money in real estate. And so... You know, it's a it's a case for them where they just feel like, you know, we lost money when the going was good. Now things are becoming uncertain with higher mortgage rates, with existing home sales declining, uh, home sales sold declining. And so, you know, we need to cut costs right now. And I think with Compass, the situation is similar. Compass and Redfin were the only two publicly traded companies in residential real estate that I think lost money in 2021. And so I think Compass also felt that the quote from Robert Refkin, their CEO, is that we need to do more with less. And so I think that they are looking, they've, you know, they're famous for growing quickly, expanding quickly. They're kind of looking at retrenching right now. And, you know, seeing if they can kind of spin the market share that they've gotten and and some of the you know, warm comments, uh, positive comments from their agents about their technology, about kind of what Compass has done for them, for them to, to try to spin that and in, into being a company that's profitable. It's a great point. I think that um, that leads me to the next article I wanted to talk about, which was in the same week that they, maybe even the same day that they announced the layoffs, um, Redfin, uh, you know, announced or, or it became known. I'm not sure how that works. Um that their executives were going to get, you know, pretty big payouts uh, that the shareholders had had voted that for them. But those payouts were really based on 2021 volume, correct? Yeah, 2021 performance. I think, you know, Redfin, if, if Redfin were on this podcast, they would make very clear that, um, you know, it was a coincidence that the same day the shareholders of Redfin approved executive compensation for 2021 it was a coincidence that happened the same day that Glenn Kelman like wrote the blog post, um, where I guess employees were later informed, like on Zoom calls or individually later in the day, that they would be laid off that like last Tuesday. Um, I, I would say that though the the substance of the story here, I think, is important to our readers because basically what happened is that even though Redfin lost money in 2021 that they decided to give uh, Chris Nielsen, their chief financial officer for the last several years, over $2 million. They decided to give Bridget Frey uh, over $2 million. Um, basically, there were um, this handful of executives who received pay of over $2 million. And so I think that's interesting at a time when the company is losing money and, and concerned about profitability. It's also interesting that um, the executives, uh, Nielsen included, not, not to sort of single him out, but he was sort of the highest ranking 
executive who received this level of compensation, he received like most of the performance bonus for 2021. And this was a performance bonus based on uh, company diversity goals and, and company financial performance goals. And this is a question that I've, you know, posed back to Redfin. I'm curious to know kind of what was it about Nielsen's performance or Frey's performance that Redfin found, you know, to be, you know, satisfactory and to be sort of deserving of, you know, a six-figure performance bonus. And so, you know, I don't know the answer to that question off the top of my head. I can say that there was a shareholder meeting on Tuesday. The shareholder meeting lasted eight minutes. Uh, the shareholders who, you know, to be fair to Redfin, the shareholders, it's not Glenn Kalman owns like 70% of his shares. The shareholders are kind of a mix of different asset firms. Um, but they approved this compensation that a, that a board that include, included Glenn Kalman recommended. And so I just think broadly it raises questions about Again, the direction the Redfin is going in, their corporate governance, you know, if this company is doing something right, if, you know, somebody like Chris Nielsen does deserve this level of executive compensation, like what is it that they're doing right? And if, you know, Redfin does prove doubters wrong in, in a year or two, like like what might it be that that is promising about this brokerage right now? And I'm not really sure what what is. Yeah, those are all good questions. I mean, when you look at their their base salary, it's pretty low. So it feels like most of their comp is coming in those bonus, you know, in the bonus structures they get. I mean, I, they're they're you know some of those bonus, uh, some of the compensation that you listed is you know less than somebody in Silicon Valley gets if they're an engineer. You know, so I felt I was kind of struck by the fact that their base comp is pretty low, and so this kind of bonus structure is like understandable if it seems like oh they got two million. And, and also as a, you know, if you think about tech companies, it's not usually, you know, it's not always a correlation between like, oh, they made all this money or they made all this profit, right? Um, it, it could be other things. And, and then of course, also in a really disruptive time or a time where we might have, you know, see huge volumes falling and, and all these other things, you really want to have some executives, you want them to stay and if they're the right people to write the ship or to, to navigate through the waters, right? So to me, it doesn't seem super uncommon that, that they would do this. I think the timing was really unfortunate. Yeah, I think I think that's true. I, I would agree that it's probably not super uncommon. Um, and you know, again, like I don't, I don't know, sort of, um, and I, I don't mean to sort of unfairly single some people out. I just don't know kind of what's what's going on behind closed doors there is and and i think you're right they obviously feel that these people are the right people to you know turn the company around because if, if they didn't they'd be looking you know they'd be doing you know what compass is doing now and, and looking for a new uh chief financial officer so and and that's a good point too that you know right like these performance goals i'm looking at the bottom line they might be looking at other metrics that they feel are more important right now. Um, so, and, and it also should be pointed out that Glenn Kalman makes $300,000 a year, which for a CEO of a publicly traded company is, you know, probably a fourth of what other CEOs that I cover make. And so I think, I think that, you know, there's nothing per se nefarious that Redfin is doing. There's nothing. 
Um, but you know, if I if I had been laid off by Redfin, I might find it nefarious. But it's more of a question as to sort of the corporate governance there and, and kind of what their next move might be and if these are the right people to turn the ship around, like what, what their what their plan might be. I think that the thread that goes through, you know, the first thing we talked about, the city snap and Redfin and Compass and every other real estate brokerage right now and company right now is like, what is the model that's going to work going forward? We know what's worked in the past, you know, what worked or, or didn't work um, for consumers, but also for those companies bottom line when we were just in the last two crazy years. And then what's going to, what's going to work going forward. And I think that's the question that you, especially of everyone on our staff is really looking into like, what is the model ensure success or, or gives someone a, a good chance of success going forward versus what we've done in the past. And sometimes in, in times like this, it is the older models that are going to do better, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes this is going to be the tipping point of like, we look back and go, oh yeah, that's right. Because we had the disruption. First of all, we had all that volume. And then when that volume fell off as the market turned, what happened? And I think that's what's so fascinating to me about the way you're digging in on the different models. So would love to know any insights you have there, you know, as you compare the different ones. Yeah, thanks. Um, I mean, I think it's it's really interesting. I mean, my time in covering real estate has really been mostly during the pandemic. And, and so kind of when I started in earnest, like covering these companies' business models, it was the quantitative easing of the start of the pandemic. It was, you know, pushing interest rates down. And so this is kind of the first time where, you know, I've been dealing with sort of the, you know, the broad ramifications of, excuse me, monetary policy changing, like how it might affect the markets that I, you know, the market that I cover and the companies that I cover. So I think that there's a lot of uncertainty because some companies, Realogy, even the iBuyer Offerpad have found playbooks where they can be profitable in a 2021 market. Um, We'll see the 2022 market, I guess, in terms of very specific solutions, the specific solutions, you know, pushed so far have included, you know, mortgage joint ventures where real estate companies share in the profits with mortgage lenders. Can those work in a market where few people are refinancing a mortgage where, you know, the number of mortgages is presumably, you know, declining precipitously with mortgage interest rates, you know, almost double what they were this time last year. And then I think what, if you listen to Compass, their, you know, earnings calls, always a mantra is attachment rate, ancillary services, title, escrow services, mortgage insurance, perhaps. But you know, that's kind of easier said than done. And, and that involves either acquiring companies or that involves getting um, a consistent, well-performing title company that the consumers will stick with. And I think that, you know, there's a real question, and, and this relates back to the compensation packages, I think, with the, the Redfin folks and that, you know, the compensation packages of any brokerage, like, like what can a brokerage do? Like we know what an we know. Like I've written stories about like what an agent can do. Like an agent can add value. An agent can kind of be your therapist through a home sale. You know, people can differ about like what value does an agent really add. But you know, I think that there's a fundamental understanding about kind of 
the arguments of like the pros and cons of like real estate agents. I think with brokerage, it's like really unclear. Like if I'm an established agent, why do I need Compass versus EXP versus doing my own thing? And what is the, what is the value add for me as an agent? And then as a consumer, what does the brokerage add to me if I'm basically just working through an agent? And so I think that these brokerages are kind of, I don't want to say that they're facing like an existential crisis, but I think that they're facing like a crisis of sort of like, what is it that we can do during a difficult market to both A, be profitable and B, say that we're adding value because like, I guess just to like make one more very broad point about this. Like if I were like Macy's, my goal was to like add value to like the person who shops at Macy's. But if I'm like a real estate brokerage, it's sort of a push and pull. Like is my value adding to the consumer? Like that's Zillow's model, like adding value to the consumer, or is it more like adding value to the agent, which is more say compasses model. The brokerages, I think, all of them in, in in some cases are just struggling to sort of say to themselves and, and to the public, like, how do we have that? I think that's, you know, really interesting. And I think that's one of the reasons that we're writing those stories, talking to agents about like, how, how helpful do you find the, the uh, tech stack or uh, the technology platforms that you're offered? Because this is something that's so hard to do at scale. I may be a great agent if I'm out there on my own and I don't have that kind of, um, you know, uh, backing of a brokerage that that can invest in that kind of technology. You know, I feel like that's a, a real differentiator. And then probably marketing, right? I think those are the two things that we see people talk about most as far as value add is like what they're how they're helping this be a seamless process to find, uh, you know, connect with and also deliver value to the consumers, but also then what that looks like on the marketing, the tech side. And we've found some, I, I think when we've dug in, it's been interesting to, to hear agents who really like the platforms that they're working for. There are also agents who don't, right? But uh, they, they, they switch. And, and so the tech part, I think, is, is really interesting. The tech part is really interesting because you have, you know, places like Compass and Keller Williams that have their own kind of in-house tech platform. And my colleague, Brooklyn Han, and I are actually working on a piece about um, the Compass tech platform. And, you know, what Brooklyn has spoken with many agents who are, you know, very sincere and saying like, hey, like, no, this is great. Like, this orders my life. This is this app. Like, I can open this app. I don't have to open, like, you know, three or four apps. I can just open this app. Like, that kind of, you know, thing where they're adding value. Um so I, I, I would say, though, that, I mean, the, a couple issues with tech. I mean, one is that, like, agents can also just use HomeSnap, which comes free with an MLS uh, subscription, or and then use HomeSnap Plus, and, and you don't necessarily need to use a tech platform that's, like, affiliated with your brokerage. And I, and I think that... Also, if there's like an arms race between Keller Williams, App Properties, Compass, EXP, different brokerages that offer their own in-house technology, like what is sort of the payoff with, you know, resources expended versus the specific value that, you know, I'm adding to the agent. And, and I think that, you know, it's, I, I very much understand why brokerages have invested so much in technology, but I think, you know, it gets down to the nuts and bolts of kind of 
what the agent is most comfortable with the same way like you or I might be more comfortable with like an Apple phone or an Android phone or something like that, like kind of the subjective preferences of agents. And then also kind of what what else from that non-brokerages might be on the market. And I would just say quickly in terms of, yeah, I think you're right. I think that like tech and advertising are like the two main ways brokerages can differentiate themselves. But I also think that brokerages are really taking you know, to that point are taking like a hard look at like any expenditure that's not tech or advertising. And, and so, you know, I did a piece last week about Compass closing down offices. And I think that that's, um, Compass is losing, frankly, losing more money than other brokerages, but I don't think that's a unique thing Compass is looking at. I think that other brokerages are shutting down offices and they're shutting down you know, other services than maybe they had in the past for, for agents. So um, be a little bit specific there. So physical offices, I think that you said eight physical offices, right, in California? Yeah, well, actually, Compass changed, and they, they said that they're shutting down five offices in California and then one office each in, in three other states. And so they still have um compass told me they still have 556 offices so it's you know it's a very minuscule number of offices they're shutting down relative to like all their offices but you know on each of those offices they have to pay a lease and i don't think any of those are owned i, I could be wrong but all oh, 95 to 100 percent of those are leased and so they're paying a lease and and this is something that brokerages were doing at the start of the pandemic and then sort of like stalled out a bit, but I think might be something that they're looking back again, like how can we get out of office leases? And so in that regard, like brokerages like EXP or side that don't have physical offices, you know, could be at a competitive advantage. It's fascinating to me. We have so many, uh, we have old guard players, we have new, new companies looking to disrupt, but in the end it will, We'll see. What is it that what tends to win? And really, I I think it's going to come down to being um, a whole variety, right? Consumers have shown that they they like to find things online, but they still really like that handholding. And so that might come in a lot of different forms. Um, You know, you do have the advertising uh, behind you when you have a, a big brokerage like Keller Williams, when you have some of those others that that are like people are just familiar with them. And so just the the name recognition alone, you know, if they don't know, like, I don't know what EXP is. I don't know what Compass is or whatever. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, to use in my personal life, my parents just sold their home in Wisconsin and they used Century 21. And I was like, right, there was some like trust um, in, in the brand, you know, like there is so just in like my own sort of intuition and like helping my parents with that or monitoring that. Like, yeah, there is some like, you know, like I think there is brand recognition and I think you're right. Yeah. And the only other thing I'd add to that though, is just sort of, you know, in terms of like things online and stuff, like Steve Murray at Real Trends is always talking about like, um, you know, most of, I don't have the number at the tip of my fingers, but like the vast majority of people who use a real estate agent, like use a real estate agent, like through word of mouth, like because of like a friend or family member recommendation. And so I think that like, you know, it always like throws into question both how much advertising to do and yeah, the right kind of advertising. 
It's a great point. Well, what are some of the things that uh, we should be looking for over the next week or so that you're working on now? Yeah, so um, I'm working a bit on that Compass Tech. I do want to, um, I've been talking with some agents in different markets. Um, I do want to kind of have a piece up about the Phoenix market because what we're seeing right now there is that throughout 2021, uh, Brooklyn, James Kleinman, like wrote stories I did about like how the Phoenix market is like crazy escalating 20, 30% home price appreciation. We're seeing changes there now. And oftentimes the Phoenix market, because it's a market with a lot of iBuyers, some corporate landlords, you know, mom and pop investors, it can often be like a bellwether for other Sunbelt markets and other national markets. Uh, what we're seeing there is a, is a huge spike in inventory, which could either be good in that like the market is normalizing or bad in that like nobody can afford a home anymore or maybe a combination thereof. So anyway, I'm trying to look, trying to move from this, you know, national view into a look at kind of, you know, if markets really are changing, which, which I do think they are like, like, what is that change looking like? And then also, um, I've, I've been shadowing an agent, Stephanie Roberte, who's been very, very kind in letting me follow her throughout Chicagoland. And I'm writing a piece about that experience and really kind of, I think, provides a glimpse into both like the exhaustive work real estate agents do, but also just the frustrations that, you know, um, I was speaking, you know, the couple of couples um, in their 30s who were, you know, looking for homes and just sort of how difficult it was. And, and Chicago is not even like one of the most competitive urban markets, but, you know, one person bought a home moved in from Atlanta, bought a home on scene, for example. Um, so it's a really cutthroat market right now for home buyers. And, and hopefully this piece kind of provides, you know, il- illustrates that in a more human level. I think that that's one thing to remember because, you know, we can see the numbers and we can see that in my particular very small market that I'm familiar with around my house, because I uh, am in the process of selling a house and actually I'm under contract now, I felt like the market changed within two weeks. Like um, May was May was one week, one thing, and we saw homes flying off the market. There was nothing there and all this stuff. And then really June has been a completely different thing. Not not like it's crashing or anything, but like much more inventory to your point. Um, things just sitting for longer. So again, a more normal market, right? It's not a bad thing. It's not like, oh, housing's going to crash. I mean, it could it could crash from other things, but this is this is not an indicator of that. It's really more like, oh, like it took 10 days for us to get an offer on the house. 10 days is great. In a normal market, you'd be like, I got an offer in 10 days. But because of all the hype, we're like, oh, we thought we'd get an offer the first weekend or, you know, the second weekend or whatever. It was it was 10 days. So I just think it's funny. And now we see like I think there's two or three more homes in our neighborhood, which there were none for the longest time. So. Um, I'll be interested to see what you find in Phoenix to your point. Like it's a bellwether for some of the Sunbelt states, maybe even including um, DFW where I live. Um, and and just kind of looking at like, what does a more no- normal market mean? And and what does that mean as people, um, you know, more inventory generally brings prices down a little bit, which is nice. And in, a, in places where you've had 20 and 30% growth, it should come down a little bit, right? That's, that's unsustainable over the long time, uh, over the long term. So 
be interesting to see. Thank you so much for being on. You've talked about a lot of things and it might be that some of our listeners would love to reach out to you about some of these uh, issues, either to be a source or to give you comments. Um, so how can they, how can they get in touch with you, Matt? Yeah, of course. Um, M Blake at hwmedia.com. That's M E L A K E at hwmedia.com. Awesome. Um, we look forward to talking to you again soon and thanks so much for being on. How have the 2022 housing market forecast changed? Or how is the industry navigating the shift to a purchase-driven market? HousingWire's premium content program, HW+, answers questions like these and offers a variety of member-exclusive benefits that are tailored to what you need to stay competitive and agile in today's fast-paced market. Go to housingwire.com forward slash membership to join today. With your HW Plus membership, you get access to longer-form digital content, the Housing Wire magazine, member-exclusive rates to in-person events like Housing Wire Annual, and more. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.